Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to Acts chapter 9. Uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Hope that uh, if there's anybody here who's on the tail end of, of, a, of a holiday visit, that, um, that you enjoyed your time with family and uh, that it was just a rich time of, of good eating, good fellowship, and uh, good remembrance of the good gifts that God has given us. And uh, as Stephen said a moment ago, you know, Thanksgiving really isn't a, a Christian holiday per se, um, but it is, uh, if we think about what the Word of God teaches us about Thanksgiving, it is very much a Christian sort of orientation of heart. We are to give thanks in all circumstances, uh, as, as Stephen led us this morning. And the reason that we have uh, a re- uh, the reason that we have to be thankful and that our lives are to be characterized by thanksgiving is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And when we really understand the gospel, when the grace of God, his undeserved favor towards sinners, really begins to take root in our lives, we, we start to see how it's possible that we can be thankful in all circumstances. I have a favorite story of, of this sort of thanksgiving in, in, in all circumstances, not just in, in good times, but in all circumstances. And it comes from the life of a Puritan pastor named Matthew Henry who lived in the 17th century. You may have uh, read his commentaries uh, on the whole Bible. He was a, a great, uh, brilliant pastor and, and scholar and writer. And one day when Matthew Henry was on his way home from a, a speaking engagement, he was stopped on the road and he was robbed. And uh, every penny that he had was taken from him by this robber. And Henry's perspective on this incident has been preserved for us uh, by the means of what he wrote about it in his journal. And here's what he said. This is really interesting. I want you to catch this. He said, let me be thankful. It's interesting. And he gives four reasons why. First, that I was never robbed before. Second, because though he took my money, he did not take my life. Third, though he took all that I had... It was not much. And fourth, and check this out, that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Isn't that interesting? See, when when Jesus saves you, when he starts to, to do his work in your life and you begin to be discipled and trained by grace, you start to see that God's grace is is everything. And that God's grace is really fundamentally the only difference between you and the thug on the street who wants to steal your stuff. If Jesus has taken hold of you, you have reason to give thanks today. And I hope that through our time together, considering how Jesus took hold of another man, that we'll be filled with thanksgiving and strength and confidence in him. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and this morning we have come to chapter 9 and the story of how Jesus took hold of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And this is probably the most famous and possibly the most significant conversion story in all of Scripture. And by the way, the guy we're talking about's name is Saul. If you don't know this, he's going to go on to later become Paul. And I can guarantee you at least 10 times I'm going to refer to him as Paul, even though I'm really trying to call him Saul, okay? So if you hear me say Paul, I mean Saul. We good? We've covered that? Excellent. Uh, If you would, let's stand out of reverence for Jesus Christ and for his word as we prepare to read it together. Here's what we're going to see in the text today. When even the most rebellious and insolent enemy of God comes face to face with the grace of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through the first part. Of verse 19. This is the word of God 
and it is eternally true. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked, them, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord is not like those things. The word of the Lord endures forever. And as we sit under it, may he write its truth on our hearts. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <coughs> Excuse me. Like most of you, I'm, I'm sick. Well, soon after you become a Christian, you hear about this guy named the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is a massive figure in the Christian faith. In the New Testament, there are 27 books. Um, Paul is the author of 13 of them. There's some people that think he wrote Hebrews too. So if you believe that, that makes it 14. That means he wrote more than 50% of the books of the Bible. Personally, I don't. We can get into that later. Text me and I'll tell you why. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and humanly speaking, he was responsible for the greatest missionary movement in human history. He was a brilliant, bold, strong, beastly man of God. He was a man who loved the grace of God. But he's also a guy with a past. And if you're going to understand who he was, if we're going to really think together about Paul the apostle, we're going to rem- we're gonna have to think a little bit about who he was before he met Jesus and I, I don't know about you, but I think spiritual leaders who are sinners, that's a real blessing in a way, isn't it? 
I hope, you, I hope you know, by the way, that if you're a part of Four Oaks, other than Jesus himself, every spiritual leader you have is a sinner, right? You know that. You're saying, yes, Josh, we've met. I know you're a sinner. I've got it. Steve Brown, who is a, a seminary uh, professor and a, and a pastor, uh, used to love to say to uh, rambunctious and, and, and eager seminarians who uh, like to dig their heels in over issues of doctrine and, and life and practice, he would say, you know what, man, you haven't lived long enough, sinned big enough, or, or failed nearly enough to know anything about that, <laughs> which I think is good. Well, well, Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, had sinned big, and he knew plenty about what it meant to preach grace because he had received it. Five times in the New Testament and three times in the book of Acts, we get Saul's conversion story narrated to us. And in one instance, Saul is speaking, he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says this. This is how he characterizes himself pre-conversion. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Now, we're all, we're all good postmoderns, right? We've all been well-schooled in, in the ways of, of therapeutic language, and we'd be like, come on, Paul, you're not that bad, right? I mean, you've got some stuff, you know, you got, you've did some things, but, but you're a good person, right? Don't be so hard on yourself. Well, as you dig into the backstory of Saul of Tarsus, you come to find out that he might even be underselling it just a little bit to say that he's an insolent opponent. He is every bit as bad of a dude as he claims to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first time Saul of Tarsus shows up on the scene is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Philip is preaching and people come to take up stones to put him to death. And we read this in Acts chapter 7, 58. And they cast him, that's uh, Stephen, not Philip, I'm sorry. They cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is a sign that Saul is in charge of this unruly mob. He's the person in authority overseeing the murder of Stephen. Chapter 8, verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 makes it explicit. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we saw this last week, right? As a result of this persecution that Saul is bringing about in the church, Christians are scattering outside of Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. And Saul becomes aware of this. And in chapter 9, verse 1, it says he, he, he finds out what's going on. He decides to mount up. He gets his posse together, and he's going to go off and do a little bounty hunting, like Boba Fett from Star Wars, right? Can you tell I'm pretty geeked about the trailer for the new Star Wars that just came out? Anyways, Boba Fett was a bounty hunter. It doesn't matter. It's apropos of nothing. Saul goes to the high priest. That's, that's Caiaphas. He would be the, the president of the Sanhedrin, the head of the, of the Jewish state who had authority given to him by the Roman government to rule in matters that pertained to, to Jewish life and, and custom and community. And so the high priest gives Saul letters to go to Damascus to find Christians to drag them back so that they can be persecuted and killed. Think about this. Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. That's the distance from Gainesville to Tallahassee, okay? 
and there were no cars, so Saul's decided he's going to walk or ride on a horse 150 miles so that he can pursue these Christians. That's about a week's journey, depending on how you were getting there. This is a level of, of zeal and enthusiasm for his job that should, that should give us pause. 9 verse 1 says that he's breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. And that, that Greek word is, is empneo. It means breathing in. It's not, we think of that in, at a first reading as, as exhaling. He's breathing threats. But he's actually breathing in threats. That's, in a sense, even worse. He's subsisting on his hatred for Christians. Do you remember, do you remember a few years ago the song we used to sing, This is the air I breathe. Remember that? Your holy presence living in me, your very word spoken to me. Well, if Saul was going to sing that song, this is the air I breathe, killing Christians. Why is he doing this? Is he, is he a God hater? Is he, is he an atheist? Is he kind of one of the new atheists like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, who are writing books saying that Christianity is ridiculous, it's not good for the world? Is he coming from that perspective? No, not at all. Because he wrote a lot of the New Testament, we have a lot of information on his backstory. A couple of things we know about him. One, he was, he was intellectually elite. He probably studied at the university, very prestigious and well thought of university in Tarsus. He studied um, uh, the Hebrew scriptures under a man named Gamaliel, who was the preeminent Old Testament scholar of that time. He graduated at the top of his class in the religious academy, Galatians 1.14. It says he advanced in Judaism beyond many of his own age. He was the valedictorian genius. In addition, he was socioeconomically privileged. He was a Roman citizen, which meant that he was afforded great societal and legal protections as a citizen of the state of Rome. In addition to that, he was a man who was religiously zealous. And here we start to get into the reason for why Saul is doing this. He is not atheistic at all. He is a devoutly Jewish man. And we see uh, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives sort of his, his credibility as a Pharisee, as, 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 a, as, a, as a member of the nation of Israel. Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as for righteousness under the law, blameless. When it comes to religious adherence and effort. Saul is the most pharisaical Pharisee who ever Pharisee, right? And in his zeal, with all of his learning, from his privileged position, Saul believes that he is pleasing and serving God by annihilating what he thought was a heretical sect of Judaism that he saw as a threat to his religion. Saul is a murderous maniacal opponent of the church. And the reason I explain all of this to you is I want you to, I want you to see this. Saul is almost like a composite sketch of the unlikeliest convert in human history. He's the genius intellectual with all sorts of degrees. He is the devoutly religious person who thinks your religion is ridiculous. He is the person who has everything he needs in and of himself, and he can't understand why he would need Jesus. I want you to do this. Imagine the person in your life that you think is least likely to become a Christian. Here's the good news. God saved Saul. 
he can save that person too. If you're a Christian, please don't don't edit anyone out of God's story. Because there's no such thing as someone who's beyond his reach. God is about to blow up Saul on the Damascus Road like this. The unlikeliest convert in human history is about to become a Christian. So don't lose hope. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might say, we don't know my past. You don't know the sin that I've walked in in my life. You need to know this. There is no sin that puts you beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no sin that the grace of God isn't strong to overcome. You know this too. There are people in this church, we all have sin in our pasts too. There are people in this church who have committed adultery, who have had abortions, who have lied, who have stolen, who have cheated. And our testimony is this, not that Jesus saved us because we were good. Our testimony is that God's grace was far too powerful for our sin to withstand. And that Jesus, Jesus is better than you could ever dream or imagine. Maybe it's not about your past sins. Maybe it's about your doubts. You don't understand all the problems I have with Christianity. It doesn't make sense to me. I think Christians are weirdos. I just want you to know, I feel like Four Oaks is a really safe place to have doubts. It's a safe place to not be sure. It's a safe place to ask questions. I really encourage you, ask somebody around you. Have a conversation with them. Jump into one of our fellowship groups that meet in homes throughout the week. We'd love to talk with you about, about, this, about this Jesus who's intervened in our lives. I want to ask you this question too if you're not a Christian. Could even the fact that you're here today hearing this message be a sign that God is, is pursuing you? He's eager to draw you to himself. Just like he pursued Saul. It brings us to our, our second act in this story, and that's the violent grace of God intervening in Saul's life. Saul's nearing the end of his 150-mile journey. The posse is locked and loaded. Everything's going good. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a blinding light appears and knocks Saul to the ground. Heaven peels back for just a moment, and the glory of God shines down, blinds Paul, and, Paul, and Jesus speaks and he says, Saul, Saul. By the way, when, when Jesus knows you and, and loves you in a personal way and tenderly wants to get your attention, he'll sometimes say your name twice. A couple examples in the scriptures. There's the story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha where Martha is, is serving. She's, she's being the good hostess and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and she's getting so upset because her sister's listening to Jesus and not helping her serve and And Jesus looks at her with tender love and affection, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Come sit at my feet. Happens again in Luke chapter 22, right before Jesus is going to go to the cross, right before he uh, tells Simon Peter that he's going to deny him three times, before Peter's own dark night of the soul, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you hear the tenderness? Even as Jesus 
voice booms out of heaven. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love this. Jesus doesn't say, my church, the way, my people, Christians. He says, why are you persecuting me? And don't miss this. Jesus so closely identifies with his people that when you persecute them, you persecute him. The church is Jesus' bride, and you cannot say that you love Jesus while being hostile or even indifferent to Jesus' bride. It's the same thing with me. You can't say to me, Josh, you're awesome, but we hate Katie, your wife. First of all, there's no reason you would ever say that. But that's the thing is, if you have a problem with Katie, then you and I have a problem, right? Because we're one flesh. We're, we're together. I identify with her as my wife at the deepest part of who I am. And in the same way, Jesus identifies with the church. There can be no love for Jesus Christ where there is no love for Jesus' church. Saul responds to this question with a question of his own. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think Saul's question is very revealing about his state of mind in this moment. Who are you, Lord? I think Saul is genuinely confused. I think he's asking a sincere question. Remember, Saul thought that he was doing God's work by persecuting the church. And so the fact that Jesus is coming to him and saying, why are you persecuting me? It just doesn't compute for Saul. He doesn't get it. As a Pharisee, Saul imagined that God was, was someone who rewards you for doing righteous deeds, for, for keeping the law. And Jesus, Saul knew that he preached a message of grace and salvation for sinners. And this is something totally different than the concept of God that he had built his entire life upon. So I think he's sincerely asking, who are you? What, what, what's going on? You know, modern people have their own way of doing the exact same thing of coming up with a version of God that isn't really God at all. Something we do all the time. Maybe you've heard someone say before, well, I like to think of God as X. I prefer to think of God as loving and not judgmental. Maybe some people say it this way, I could never believe in a God who blank. And that could be who wouldn't condone whatever sexual ethic I embrace, who would make claims upon the way that I live my life, or who would tell me that what I'm doing isn't okay. Can we just, have you heard this? Can we talk about that for a second? Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, says, if your God never disagrees with you, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping what? Yourself. An idealized version of you. I remember very vividly Katie and I sitting uh, at at our dining room table with someone and sharing the gospel with them and taking them to the Word of God and saying, this is who God has revealed Himself to be. Here's, here's how Jesus makes atonement. He brings us back to God through His death and resurrection. And they kept saying back to us, but I like to think of God in this way. I think God is, is, this, is this sort of God. I think, I think He speaks in these ways. I think He acts in these ways, and He, he approves this and disapproves of that, and, and kept pushing back on these things that we were pointing to in the Scriptures. And I remember Katie looked at this person and said, can I just say, it sounds like the God that you follow is, is a God that you've constructed for yourself rather than the God who's revealed himself to you in the Scriptures. And I get it if that sounds offensive to you, but you have got to know this. 
If you serve and follow a worship and worship a God who is an idealized version of yourself, that God cannot save you. That God cannot do anything for your sin problem, which is that you are separated from him because of your sin. You need to meet the true God. And Scripture testifies to this. When you do meet the true God, he will change you. He will begin to root out like a skilled physician. He'll start to heal your wounds. He'll start to take the wrong things you've believed about him Take them away and replace them with right things. You'll start to chip away at the sin in your life and replace it with obedience and holiness. When you come in contact, when you come face to face with the real God, He'll begin to subvert your vision of yourself. He'll knock you off your horse so that He might call you to repentance and faith in Him so that you might look to Him and live. That's exactly what he does with Saul. Saul is confronted by the real God, and the real God just levels him. And in a moment, proud, angry, violent, breathing threats, Saul lies in a heap on the ground, blind, helpless, a shell of his former strength. And he has to be led by his traveling companions on to Damascus where he sits quietly for three days taking no food or water with his physical blindness serving as a profound picture of the spiritual blindness he's walked in his entire life. It says he doesn't eat or drink for three days and it's easy to think that he's just talking about fasting. He's, he's He's doing an act of spiritual obedience, fasting, abstaining from food and water as an act of worship to God. But I don't think that's where the text is taking us. I think instead what's happening is this. I think, I think Saul is devastated. I think he's having a personal crisis. I think he's having a dark night of the soul. I think he's saying to himself, my whole life has been built on a lie. I've been blind my whole life. Israel's Messiah came, the promise was fulfilled, and in my blindness, I persecuted those who had eyes to see it. And here's the thing, here's the lesson we need to see here. Before you can come to Jesus, something's going to have to happen. You're going to have to have your strength and your self-sufficiency taken away from you. Because the gospel isn't for the strong people who are good enough on their own, who can obey just fine, who can keep the law in their own strength. The gospel is for those who have been brought low. Have you ever heard someone say, Christianity is a crutch for weak people? Have you ever heard that criticism? What's the right answer to that? That's right. More so than you could imagine. Jesus isn't for people who are strong enough to pull themselves out of the pit of their own sin. Because if that were possible, if it were possible to be right with God through your white knuckling, through your hard work, through your religious zeal, through your obedience to God's law, then Saul would have had it. But it's not, so he didn't. This is, this is the problem that we all have. We need a righteousness to stand before God. 
that we cannot provide in and of ourselves. And so we have to come to Jesus, not merely for the forgiveness of sins, but for a righteousness that we can't produce in in and of ourselves. A righteousness that's credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ as a gift. Saul's righteousness wasn't enough for him. And brothers and sisters, yours is not enough for you either. And in love, Jesus took Saul from his high place and brought him low. So the question for us we have to ask is, have you come to the end of your own strength? Has God brought you to a place where you realize finally you can't do this on your own? If he has, then you need to know this. That's God's grace to you. Because it was God's grace to Saul. See, here's the beauty of this. Saul's story doesn't end here. Saul's story doesn't end him end here with, with him sitting in a dark room in Damascus with no food or water, destitute, a shell of his former self. The story goes on. God's violent, disrupting grace doesn't just bring his enemy to his knees. It also carries him to God's table. In verse 10, we meet the means by which God's going to do that. A man named Ananias. Now, this is not Ananias from chapter 5. That guy's dead. Remember, he lied to the Holy Spirit about how much they had sold the field for. God struck him dead. This is a different Ananias. This is a disciple in Damascus, and God has a terrifying and privileged job for Ananias to do. He speaks to him in a vision. He says, go down to the street called Straight. By the way, the street called Straight is still a main east-west thoroughfare in modern Damascus to this day. He says, go down to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas. Again, not that Judas. He's also dead. This is a different guy named Judas. And go lay your hands on Saul so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias' response falls a little short of enthusiastic obedience, doesn't it? He says, Lord, that's kind of how I imagine he said it. It's like, um, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. God, did you hear about that? Wrong number, maybe? You sure it's Saul? Sure it's not some other guy? We can understand this reaction, right? Like, clearly the word of who Saul is and what Saul is doing has made its way to Ananias. And it's very possible here that Saul had murdered some of Ananias' friends and loved ones. It's certain that Ananias knows that Saul has come to Damascus for the express purpose of dragging people, kicking down the doors of people just like him, dragging them off to Jerusalem so that they might be persecuted and killed. At the very least, Ananias knows that's true. And God telling Ananias to do this would be like him telling you in a vision, head up to Starbucks at Cary Forest, because guess what? Really exciting news. One of the leaders of ISIS is there, and he's waiting for you. And when you show up, bring your, bring your Bible. You're going to have a prayer meeting with him, and you're going to take him back into your house. It's going to be great. You can't miss him. Long beard. You know, looks like ZZ Top. You can't miss him. He's going to be there. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen him. Anyway, the point being, this is a big ask. And so Ananias is like, God, are you, are you sure about that? God says, go. And then this is an incredible promise of who this man is going to become and what he's going to do. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias goes. 
He enters the house and he lays his hands on Saul. And check this out. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Guys, Brother Saul, that might be my favorite part of this whole narrative. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have been like for Saul in his blindness, in his state of physical exhaustion? He's been knocked over by the presence and the, and the, the audible voice of God. He hasn't taken any food or any water in three days. He's under the weight of conviction for the heinous crimes that he's committed against the people of God to have this Man, this man whom he was on his way to kick down his door, arrest him, take him, persecute him, murder him. This man lays his hands on him and calls him brother. That's an incredible welcome. William Barclay says that Ananias is one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. He's the one whom God would use to strengthen Saul, to pray with him, to baptize him, and to launch him into ministry that would absolutely change the world. You know, throughout Acts, we see this sort of pattern happening again and again. We see that the Holy Spirit is the one who converts people. That's God's work to do. Conversion is a work of God. But at the same time, there are are people who come in to the lives of people who are converted so they might carry them along in their progress in the gospel. So we see this in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 that we looked at last week. We see it here in the story of Ananias with Saul. We're going to see it next week in Acts chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Jesus is the one who works in people's hearts to bring about salvation. But here's the, here's the crazy, exciting, awesome, wonderful life-giving part. We get to play a role in that. That's what evangelism is. It's, it's getting to play a small part in what God is doing in saving people and drawing men and women to himself. We have the privilege as God's people of walking alongside people who have been brought low, strengthening them, praying for them, teaching them, discipling them, telling them about who Jesus is. So the point of all this is this. Don't grow weary in sharing your faith. Don't grow weary in praying for your children. Don't grow weary of discipling that weak brother or that weak sister. Jesus is the one who's in control. And you just have no idea what he might do with that person. When even the most rebellious, insolent enemy comes face to face with the violent, disrupting grace of God. Everything changes. God's enemy is added to God's family. And here's the fruit of that, guys. The person who labored his entire life to destroy the church becomes the greatest missionary and church planter who ever lived. That is the extravagant grace of God in conversion. Amen? Last thing, imagine again the person that you thought about earlier, the person who in your mind is the least likely one in the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's the truth. Here's what God's word tells us. Every one of us is equally unlikely to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Every one of us. In our natural state, we reject God's authority in our lives and attempt to set ourselves up as our own Savior and Lord. And it takes the miracle of conversion to save anybody from their sins. And guess what? God has performed that miracle over and over and over and over and over again throughout human history. And the means by which he's brought it about is faithful proclamation. That's how you became a Christian. I've said this before. Going all the way back to Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached the gospel, and then somebody who heard it told somebody. And then that somebody told somebody. And then they told somebody else who told somebody else on and on down 2,000 years of human history until somebody told you. And the miracle took place again. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we'd love for that miracle to take place in your life. You can be like Saul. There is enough grace in Christ to overcome your sin, your doubt, to bring you into right relationship with God. He is good and he will do it. Robert Fulgham tells the story of looking out of his study window one day and seeing a bunch of kids playing hide and seek. And uh, as kids will, will do. And one kid found an awesome hiding spot. There was a giant leaf pile and he burrowed himself underneath it and laid perfectly still. And all the other kids were eventually got found and got, got tagged and they kept playing. And eventually, again, as kids do, they got bored of that game and decided to go off and play another game. Meanwhile, dude's still under the leaf pile, holding perfectly still. Nobody knows he's missing. And the kids are off having a great time playing whatever game they're going to play next. And Robert Fulgham said, all I wanted to do was open up the window and yell, get found, kid, get found. You're missing all the fun. And that's the call of the evangelist to the person who is far from God. Get found. There is life for you in Jesus Christ. You don't have to hide. He sees you as you are. And there's grace in him to forgive you. If you are a Christian, Jesus can save anybody. We can be bold in evangelism because Christ is the great pursuer. It is not up to us. It's so clear from this text Saul didn't make a decision for Christ, right? Christ made a decision for Saul. And what happens when Jesus pursues his enemy and captures their heart with grace? The proud opponent becomes the humble servant. The intellectual antagonist becomes the spiritual father. The self-righteous law keeper who breathed threats against God's people now breathes the grace of God. He breathes it in and breathes it out in proclamation to the ends of the earth. And the world is never the same. That's what the church has that nobody else has, the message of the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ. This is the only place in the world where murderers and liars like Saul and like you and me get to come and sit at Jesus' Thanksgiving table. 